0: Hello and welcome to The District Podcast, brought to you by The Spectator World. I'm editor-at-large Ben Domenech. You can check out all of our articles at thespectator.com, including one by my guest today, Ben Smith, the author of Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Illusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. Ben is editor-in-chief of Semaphore. He was previously a New York Times media columnist, before that the founder of BuzzFeed News, and before that a reporter at Politico. has essentially been a part of digital media since its foundation. He talks to me about a number of different issues related to the pursuit of traffic and clicks over the course of the past several decades. Ben Smith, coming up next. (music) Ben Smith is the editor-in-chief of Semaphore. He is also the author of the new book, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me, Ben.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: So I want to ask a bunch of questions about this book, which was not the book that I necessarily expected when I got it. Um, I want to ask, first of all, what did you want the audience to take away from this book when you started writing it?
1: You know, I mean, I guess I sort of set
0: out to to summary answer my own questions about
1: like what the hell just happened um, in terms of just what we all kind of lived through, both in the sort of wave of social media that crashed. I mean, obviously, if you're in professional media through our lives, really like through all of society, specifically the kind of rise of this new kind of digital media that you and I both spent a lot of our careers in, um, you know, and that I... Was sort of you know I was sort of around when it was getting going, but I was covering politics. I wasn't sort of central to this downtown Manhattan scene, which was where a lot of it was born. But was kind of aware of it. And and by the time I joined BuzzFeed in 2012, you know I, it's sort of like whenever you get to a scene, everybody says, "Oh, last year was really the last good year, when you should have been here." And I so I sort of had a lot of that sense of having arrived a little late, and wanted just to kind of go back and report it out. And for a lot of what I did was was go back to this world that I've heard a lot about and been aware of and been a little bit like on the outside of the glass looking in at just to sort of try to understand kind of where all this stuff that we've been in the middle of came from.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I was surprised at the tone of this book, and maybe I shouldn't have been, but it, it seems to me like I was expecting a book that was more about systems. And this is a book about people and personalities. If you contrast this with Ryan Holiday's book Conspiracy, for instance, which you obviously reference and credit um, you you see in that kind of a book about like a larger a larger philosophical battle about like the nature of two types of libertarians, gay libertarians in this case, at war with each other over the different aspects of that. you know, your book is much more about like the nitty-gritty of all these different personalities who came together and suddenly found that they were fighting over potential gold mines. Uh, it, it really is. It's interesting, but from a perspective that I didn't really expect getting into it. Did you realize that you were basically writing like a, a like a nerd soap opera at some point along the way? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm really a reporter. Not I
1: don't I don't sort of fancy myself a deep thinker particularly. And 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 to me, the the interesting thing is to just go back and report the hell out of what was actually happening. I do think there were some, you know, there are some big ideas in there, and I think the thing is, like, often, usually, I think historically, when interesting things happening, like, there's a scene, right? There's a bunch of people in a handful of bars or cafes or whatever who know each other really well and dislike each other or like each other or are sleeping together or some combination of those things, and you know, and and there's and it's hard and you can and there's something I don't know, there's something boring about totally abstracting. Their ideas away from who they are, and I, and so I guess it sort of felt natural to me to tell this story. And I do think, in particular, the reason I chose Jonah Peretti, the BuzzFeed founder, and Nick Denton, as you mentioned, created Gawker, as sort, to some degree the central threads, was because they they do each have a real ideology and a real sense and had a real vision for what the internet was supposed to be that were very different. But they were also entrepreneurs and very competitive for a bunch of reasons, and and as all I think entrepreneurs and even sort of intellectual entrepreneurs at times pretty flexible about what that ideology was as to, to make sure it suited the moment.
0: You know, it one of the things that does come through uh, pretty consistently, though, here is that there, there is this, there's a balance between the the tabloid elements of this, of discovering via uh, the different rankings and, and tools that you have, that people are far more interested in the uh, you know more salacious parts of a story as opposed to, as Ariana Huffington would like them to be interested in their arguments against the Iraq war, that it, it does sort of say, these are all people who are figuring it out on the fly. When you yeah. look back at this, was that a real defect that would hurt them later?
1: Um, I mean, the gap between, in some sense, the marketing hype and the... Kind of reality it was was always there and i think it's probably always there to some degree in the media business but i think at at huffington post it was which is sort of what you're talking about in the early days it was just very very clear that where the audience was was largely kind of slightly trashy celebrity stuff um and 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 there was an idea about it that um you know they read right, that it was this sober-minded Voice mm-hmm. of, of liberals that didn't quite fit. I mean, it's interesting. The thing that united those two was was Obama. Like yeah. Obama drove traffic. Obama did, you know, photos of Obama on the beach in Hawaii were one of their biggest posts. In <laughs> fact, and they also cheer Obama and, and 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 helped him. Like it was an you know they were really important. They were to his campaign what Breitbart was to Trump's campaign. Yeah, they were the, really important.
0: The 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 Tina Fey uh, Sarah Palin pop that shows up fairly early on in your, in your book, uh, it just kind of, it's funny to me to look back again, we know we're dealing in kind of an inflationary time, uh, in all sorts of different respects, but the numbers and the dollars involved here are so pitiful (laughs) in in the early going of this book. You know the 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 fact that they are paying attention to oh my gosh this got you know seven thousand views and this got, this yeah. got twelve thousand views and it took me back to the early days of of Blogger and Blogspot when I was uh you know uh, sort of paying attention to those and and dealing with those myself as a as a you know, late teenager was it just reminded me how small the internet really was in terms of the number of people who are writing on a daily basis on there. And that really threw me back because it, it put in perspective that this, when this got going, things changed very rapidly, and the size of the audience scale changed very rapidly to the point that you had the potential for virality in a way that you never had before.
1: Yeah, no, I think. That, I mean, I think social right. I mean, the sort of pre-social media days, the numbers, as you say, are just so much smaller, and 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 it was really the rise of Facebook that that changed that 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 took to some degree, all this tools and this way of thinking that we had all developed on these blogs that had these intense, devoted, crazy audiences. I mean, some bigger than others, right? My New York politics blog was quite small, but I was proud of it. Um, And just, you know, multiplied it like by a thousand. And I think the thing that BuzzFeed in particular saw before I joined was that this was the next thing. And Jonah Peretti sort of put himself in position to be you know, to be the content layer for this huge new social viral internet. Um, and and, and it, yeah, and for a period, it, it, like the numbers were so huge and dwarfed everything else to such a degree that it was hard to pay attention to anything else. I mean, I think that was both an editorial and a real business problem probably for all of us.
0: Uh, I want you to respond to something from uh, Neil Postman from 30 years ago talking about television uh, in the context of the, you know his overall concept of, Things getting sillier by the minute it has been demonstrated many times that a culture can survive misinformation and false opinion it Has not yet been demonstrated whether a culture can survive if it takes the measure of the world in 22 minutes, or if the value of its news is determined by the number of laughs it provides. Frame that Pretty for me. <laughs> do, do you feel do you feel like BuzzFeed is somewhat indicted by that?
1: Um, I mean, I, I'm resistant to the kind of golden age of american news. Mm-hmm. I mean I think he's probably referring to essentially CBS evening broadcasts between the 50s and the 70s. Yeah. As like the gold, you know, where it was or, and and which or, or actually really between the 50s before to his mind they got trashy in the like 60s or 70s. Yeah. Um I mean it's a pretty narrow window of history where there was this specific kind of in some ways really great in some ways, pretty flawed kind of consensus mainstream American news. I, I do think, I and mean, I don't really know what it means for a civilization to survive or not survive, as he says there, but, you know, it had made it to the 50s really without that. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, Well, I think I, I
0: think, I mean- If, if I can reframe the so, so, question- so, if I so, But reframe, I certainly do feel yes yeah. <laughs> if, 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 if I can you know I'm getting defensive about Neil Postman. No, no. If, 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 if I feel, if I, if I can reframe the question a little bit, it's that- you know, what, what I feel like was also an element of the era of Obama promotion that included, you know, a lot of different social media uh, focused content. It was that there was a silliness to it, um, and unseriousness to it at, uh, in the context of a very serious time, whether that was the financial crisis or a continued war, you know, that never ended under you know Obama in the way that it had been promised. You know, if if it was the kind of, uh, you know, things going on where we saw, you know, Obama participating in, you know, various interviews that were clearly designed to be, to go viral, to be social media ask. I mean, the questions in a debate from a snowman, you know, it's, it's just a level of silliness that I think it feels fueled by what will get the clicks on the internet versus what actually answers the serious questions of the time.
1: Um, I guess I think American politics has always been a mix of dead serious, hard stuff, and incredibly dumb, silly stuff. And I, I don't really think that. I think that you, that probably jumped out to you because Obama drove you crazy. But there was a lot of George W. Bush, great guy to get a beer with, stuff that drove liberals crazy. Reagan, you know, was famously a vapid television star who got back on charm and made and, 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 and sort of clever quips and debates to his, his haters. Um, I think American politics has always been full of, you know, and politics in general is person, you know, personality, charm. I mean, certainly Kennedy, right? Got got a long way on on a glamorous image. So I don't I think that I think these things express themselves differently, in different moments, but I, I I sort of think that that's more to some degree politics is the is 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 the force pushing this kind of personality driven stuff into the culture rather than social media. I think it's always been there. That was just sort of its expression in that particular medium, Mm -hmm. you know,
0: the the um, difference though being, I mean, I think the difference though is that it's just a kind of the scale. I mean, there's a difference between, uh, you know, sort of uh, people uh, making jokes at the expense of, of different sort of gilded age presidents versus uh, you know the the number of people who really do think that Sarah Palin said that she could see Russia from her house. <laughs> you know it, it takes on a new. Well, character. I don't know. I mean,
1: I think yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess
0: I think it goes through cycles, right? Like there was a long period where
1: the job of the media was to glamorize and the president of both parties, and often conceal all sorts of bad things they were doing or disabilities they had. Mm-hmm. And do you think that they're you know, doing a, that now? In a period. In a
0: period. <laughs> um, do you think do you think that they're doing that now with Biden? I don't I mean, really. That, that, I don't the that,
1: it's a lot of I think so. I mean, a, they're obviously. Go ahead. Yeah, that, it's a good question I mean, I do think, like, I mean, Trump in some ways was like, like, obviously the person who understood social media best, used it most effectively of any politician of our generation.
0: Sure, but the, I mean, when I when I say, do you think that they're doing that now? It's more, you know, I, it seemed genuine in terms of the shock that George Stephanopoulos had this weekend talking about the Biden personality polling in which, you know, you saw 69% of independents saying that he's too old to be president, you know, and including 21% of Democrats saying that he's too old to be president. um, And, you know, that, that kind of thing seems, you know, I certainly, I mean, I, you know, Rick Klein and I exchanged, you know, a note about it. And it just, it seems to have shocked them a little bit, but to me, that's something that if you're just consuming kind of cable news you know traditional framing of the president that you maybe don't see but that you see it in all sorts of other areas not just on fox or on conservative media but just in terms of the overall conversation i listen and consume a lot yeah, of podcasts you ask a regular
1: like, person about joe biden like yeah. he he's super old is a um is obviously pretty salient
0: yeah i mean the the, the the point i guess i would make is that you but do i feel like the media is concealing his age
1: not really
0: you you don't you and don't think both, that they're the running interference. They we mostly say at the New
1: York Times, which has done a, a couple of big stories about how old he is. I mean the pro, I, think, I mean I guess the question is like, this is somebody sitting on evidence that he is falling asleep in the meetings and ruling. Like I don't think so, but I, but on the like the like, guy genuinely do not so. mm-hmm. um, On the other hand, is there like a you know, a sort of a return to this kind of cozy establishment Washington media? sort of um, you know, Washington media deferring to the administration and the presidency that, you know, has been the norm yeah. with Washington media through history. And I would say in many ways peaked with the invasion of Iraq under George Bush. Like for sure. Yes. And and Trump was a departure from that. And I don't know, I I, I sort of I don't know. I, I'm like tired of wagging my finger about it, but like certainly there's like we're back to the kind of yeah, to so the White House Correspondence Dinner being this big celebration of how much everybody loves each other. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, But I, I genuinely think that's a bipartisan phenomenon, or at least has been in my career, with the huge, huge exception of Donald Trump.
0: So uh, when it comes to the downfall of these media entities, you know, Gawker is its own story. You know, Vice is its own story. BuzzFeed News is its own story. You know, I'm not saying that they're all coming for the same reasons or happening for the same reason. But do you think that what we're kind of seeing is coming down from a sugar high or is it all about, you know, is is the biggest shared factor, you know, algorithmic? Is there something else going on that made these dominant and, you know, upsurging entities that happened, you know, uh, you know, whether it was, you know, 12 or 15 years ago, all reach a point of, you know, significant massive decline uh, to the point of devaluation and 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 selling them off uh, or essentially shuttering the news side of what they do.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously I've thought a lot about this and like certainly spent a lot of thinking about like what we could have done differently at BuzzFeed News to, you know, I mean, ultimately keep our costs down and our revenue up, like that's what, and, and and you know, I mean, I think the reason a lot of this is happening at the same time is to some degree pretty mundane reasons like it's a tough year in the ad market and the interest rates are high. So a lot of stuff that was sort of limping along is suddenly no longer able to limp along, but but in a in and you know it, it's heartbreaking for me having been part of a lot of this stuff, but um, but I think in a bigger sense, you know, all of these things were bet were were bets on this kind of like digital promise that didn't come to pass the way we thought it would, and I don't actually think they were totally delusional bets. I just think they were they came and they didn't break that way. But it, it's it's you know I was telling I had breakfast today with again Doug Herzog who um who was there at the founding of MTV and just did this great podcast series on the birth of cable, interviewing mm-hmm. all the people who were around in the you know, the early days of CNN, MTV, places like that. And this now does sound delusional, but I bet you have I bet I bet you had this in pitch decks too, or you should have, <laughs> which was that, like basically in the '80s when cable you know the they, the cable operators laid. Cables in the ground, and they could have said, "You know what? We don't want to pay anyone to make content for these cables. We're going to let companies put free marketing on some of the channels, and if anybody wants to do user-generated stuff and you know um, public access TV, we'll do that, and that'll be it because it's free for us." Um, and instead, they they've said, "Huh? Let's like try to make tons of money and split it with these with MTV and ESPN and CNN and other companies that became great businesses, but also." locked these cable brands into people's lives. Um, And we all made a bet that that was what was gonna happen at some level. And I think Jonah Peretti was probably the person thinking most explicitly about it, but that his prediction was that Twitter, Facebook, Snap, Pinterest would, as they competed with each other in particular, and as they competed with everything else, have to start getting exclusive access to quality journalism and quality entertainment. That was custom built for their platforms and that that would wind up turning into a business for buzzfeed and places like that the way it was a business for mtv and espn mm-hmm. um like in cnn and that just obviously is not how things worked out right and for a bunch, you can say it was delusional but it never worked out that way you can say mark zuckerberg and these guys were so ideologically committed to ugc user generated content that they never went that way it was also the nice thing about user-generated content was that it's cheap. But I think if you look at the blue Facebook app now, or if you look at Twitter, I don't think you see businesses that necessarily made the right choices. Like, I think you see platforms that people have gotten sick of or, and are kind of unraveling.
0: Well, why did you decide to do another startup? Yeah. Um,
1: you know, I mean, it's funny. And writing the book, and then that was the times for a couple of years with this kind of. Actually, actually, road, you before
0: know. you before you answer that question, how old are your how old are your kids? <laughs>
1: that has something to do with it yeah um uh, uh 19 17 and 13
0: yes okay all right so you have so, so, you, so have much the, you have more forgiving the time, time to do I, I i unfortunately started later than you so i have a i have a two and a half and a three-month-old so, so yeah the, I mean, the, the compilation of buzzfeed
1: with of doing buzzfeed as a startup that my kids really love visiting buzzfeed there's a lot of just like fun activity going on there at all times
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but doing another startup it's a big lift especially at this moment and in this economy and with the kind of concerns that people have
1: yeah i mean i think you know i i mean i i was in 2020 thinking about sort of this whole cycle of you know 2000 to 2020 and sort of what had done right and what had gone wrong and and also, then at the New York Times, had this kind of front row seat to everybody else's glass houses for once, and, and was obviously watching the media business really closely. And I guess just, you know, in, in the, you know, around 2000 to 2005, the, the reason these startups came up was so these big shifts in the ecosystem. And because there was a big audience that suddenly was like, it's so amazing to be able to get, be I can read the British newspapers and the French newspapers. And I can and see what regular people are saying on blogs and it's this huge opening up and it's so exciting from a world where i had, had a couple television channels and a couple newspapers and 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 these new platforms really solve like people had real like they were they, they they appealed to people for a reason and also i think new journalism outlets appealed to people because in particular the iraq war had in some ways discredited or challenged the old ones mm-hmm. and I think you come to this moment. It's a totally different moment. The thing that the things that are driving people insane about the news are like totally different. In in that now it's like the opposite. Like people, do, I think people feel totally overwhelmed by the amount of incoming that we're all getting, mm-hmm. and it, in particularly in this sort of like late chaotic moment of social media when it's sort of unsorted and confusing, what you're getting. It's a just unbelievably horrific video of a shooting that you really mm-hmm. didn't want to see, or maybe it's an article that you just can't figure out where it's from or what the person's agenda is i mean i think it's 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 noisier than it's really ever been and yet people don't really know what to trust and so i think it's that those just sort of i mean i think the reason to start something new is to say like okay you know consumers have this set of problems that we can try to address in a kind of direct literal way
0: um on the trust side of the equation i know that you had some uh early responses that you had to make regarding uh, you know, partnership with a Chinese entity. You know, the Washington Post has had this sort of insert thing for years that has been pointed out uh, that uh, has you know created problems in the past for them in terms of Chinese investment. I, I just wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of confidence for readers, how can you make sure that in this moment when people are particularly attuned to foreign investment that you make clear that there's not an editorial element to that? Uh, you know, whether it be yeah, Russian sure. influence or Chinese influence or really anything else.
1: And people should be, I think people should be really attuned to foreign investment in general. And I should just say, because there was a bunch of noise on, on, on Twitter, we're not taking any Chinese investment. I mean, that's what we are. Yeah, no, it was, it's a part, is, I understand is, it as a we're partnership. Trying do, we're trying to, we are trying to. We haven't done it. Like this is nothing that's happened. And, yeah. and we were trying to do an event in Beijing, which, and if you're going to do a, event where you ask hard journalistic questions of Chinese officials or business leaders in Beijing, there's no way you do it without working with communists. There's not a, another path. And I think it's reasonable to say you shouldn't do it. Like it really is. I, I totally think that's a reasonable argument, um, but I think it's worth trying to do. Um, the, but I think you know what you can do is be really transparent we're getting beat up based on stuff like stuff that we said we were thinking of doing. If we wanted to, you know, just over disclose and be as transparent as we could be, because I think that I think the thing that, yeah, I
0: mean that that might be on it. Yeah, the um the other thing that uh, sticks out to me about this in terms of the the institutional trust element is, you know, the the overall perspective of of right of center and independent media consumers in the last several years uh, has been that the dominant media forces with a handful of exceptions are opposed to them and don't like the perspectives that they have. And that's something that it seems to me to have formerly been kind of a partisan element of the Republican side, but has become uh, much more broad based in the wake of COVID. Uh, And you, you know, you sort of see kind of the, I mean, I pointed out to somebody the other day, you, you realize that like every single episode that Joe Rogan has, he talks about RFK Jr., And he like boosts his book and, you know, talks Mm. about these different things that are, you know, related to that and talks about Fauci and and the general impression that is espoused by a lot of those folks is that, you know, the news media is overall bought and paid for by the pharmaceutical companies that you see all these these ads for all these pharmaceutical things and that they're beholden to those. And so they're never going to criticize Pfizer. They're never going to raise any concerns, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't know how you deal with that problem. Um, I don't know how you actually, you know, convince the the folks who are in that kind of, you know, maybe right leaning, but it's also an, a lot of independents are in there kind of space that say, you know, uh, that this is all corporate media. It's bought and paid for by big entities who are going to lie to you about things, especially after all the distrust that was increased under COVID. Is there a path out of that? What does that look like? Um, I don't think a simple one. I mean, it's sort of, a, it's ironic as you say that because of
1: course, a lot of it is fed by grifters who are specifically lying to people mm-hmm. about vaccines to take, to take subscription money out of their pockets, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is a great business too.
0: Um, oh no, don't, are you
1: kidding? Don't look down on the subscription business. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, we in, in COVID was like, a lose-lose situation, right? It was just like, was broadly incredibly terrible for society and a lot of ways we're worse off than we were before and there's not some some positive lining to it. Um, and, and and the sort of old-fashioned public health communication where you tell white lies to get people to do the right thing just obviously backfired. The thing that interests, I mean, one of the, you know, there's so many axes of this. I do think one of the things that has sort of interested me is if you read, the leak, you know, the Twitter files that the Musk kind of yeah. um, put out, or if you read um, the coverage, like the sort of either just sort of free speech conservative or anti-vaxxer conversation about that, what you see on both sides is this belief that it's totally life or death. That that if if you as a social media executive can suppress people saying mm-hmm. what are, to my mind, I should say, insane things about vaccines. Um, you will save lives, and conversely, if you are someone who thinks that vaccines are part of a Bill Gates-funded plot, for, you know, to put a chip in you, or some less far-out version, of, you know, sure. critique, that if, that if your speech can be heard on Twitter, you will save lives. And what's kind of interesting is that neither of those turned out to be true at all. Like the stakes were so much lower. The um, the, I was talking to an academic who studies this and asked him. You know, so on balance, you had the you had Twitter very aggressively deleting stuff, did that, and then you had a backlash about the deletions, and then you look at how that how you know are did Americans really get vaccinated? Actually, vaccine hesitancy in the U.S. is sort of mid tier. Like I don't know, we're probably somewhere between like the South Koreans who all got vaccinated and the Russians who are really really skeptical. Um, And he said, well, you know, you look at the sort of effect of suppressing the stuff on social media and the effect of the backlash to that, and it's probably a wash, and you wind up where you would have been before in terms of vaccination rates. Hmm. So it's kind of amazing all that sort of, you know, sound and fury.
0: You mentioned the Twitter files. Uh, Talk to me about the uh, situation with Substack. I I could not imagine a situation in the past where I would be told you know 10 years ago that someone like Barry Weiss would would self-yeet from the New York Times in order to start a newsletter. Uh, and as someone who's been I've been writing my own newsletter for almost uh, 12 years now, I I feel like it's you know it's fascinating to me to see that business come back. I don't know how sustainable it is, you know, given that you have a bunch of people paying $50 a year or something like that for a bunch of different s- subscriptions. They're gonna to want to bundle that in the same way that people are wanting to, you know, once again rebundle their streaming subscriptions and the like. What does the future look like for that subscription-based approach to media?
1: Um, I mean, I think you know, there's this real cliche in the media business that there are only two things that happen in the media business: one is bundling, and the other is unbundling. Um, and as you and I think, right, we're, the these new tools where creators or influencers or whatever you want to call journalists um and i you know journalists in particular kind of grow up in their mouths when you use those other words um can go direct to their audiences obviously have allowed this a group of people who didn't either either didn't quite fit into the politics of mainstream media like barry or just could do it like Kara swisher mm-hmm. um, and could make more money in that way have sort of broken off on their own and it's a good time to be a star i do think that what you're also seeing starting to happen is it's also like, as you know, really exhausting and to run a, a small business, which is you and kind of hard. And maybe that top line revenue isn't exactly the same as your income and you're doing your own taxes and you're mm-hmm. figuring out your health care. And when you take a vacation, you've got to find somebody to do it. And I think you're I do think that like some people I know who are in that space are starting to think, huh, like. Are there ways to federate and get some of the benefits of what you would have had with the newsroom, and certainly what we're doing at Semaphore, which I feel like I haven't plugged. But maybe yeah,
0: maybe no, I was going to ask something you about, about that next.
1: But, yeah. Yes, Semaphore.com, please sign up. <laughs> one, one of, I mean, we're, we're thinking a lot about this sort of trust and authenticity and just speaking directly to readers. But when I pitch it to journalists who want to do that, but you know, what I'm trying to offer to somebody like Reed Albergati who covers tech for us or Liz Hoffman who covers Wall Street. You know, and these are people who break a lot of news, who worked for The Wall Street Journal, for The Washington Post and were stars there, um, is kind of the best of both worlds. Like if you're a beat reporter who breaks news, you do need the editing and legal support and and kind of news colleagues of a newsroom. And yet you also do want the direct relationship with an audience that comes with Substack. And I do think media companies that can figure out how to deliver two great journalists, the best of both worlds on that are going to be better off. And the ones that try to treat journalists either as cogs in a machine, sort of faceless cogs, a la the old Wall Street Journal, or kind of creators who should just be off on their own on a platform are going to struggle.
0: Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, your plans for covering the 2024 nomination battle, such as it is at Semaphore, do you, what are your plans in terms of the the approach that you're going to take or the key elements that you think uh, and, you know, I know that you're someone who obviously, you know, you you wrote about kind of the dangers of horse race journalism uh, and what it did to uh, the coverage in the past when you were at The New York Times. Uh, how does Semaphore avoid kind of the pitfalls of that? Um, I mean, you know, I
1: mean, one thing is is, I mean, let's say a couple of things. And one is just to try to avoid just telling people what they want to hear and sort of pandering to the, you know, sort of like slipping into these lazy narratives. I mean, Dave, my colleague Dave Weigel, I think has just been, you know, incredibly good at identifying like the next thing. And whenever you say, hey, watch out, this is coming. Lots of people on social media get mad at you and call you an idiot because it doesn't fit the narrative of the moment. Mm -hmm. And he's been very resistant to that. And he's been willing to do that. And then, I mean, I do think we're trying to be really transparent in our writing, which I do think matters, and say, you know, here are some facts I found, here's what I think of them. I recognize that those two things are different, that reasonable people can disagree, and maybe here's a voice from somebody who disagrees, and we've gotten a really good reception for that. But presidential politics, because it's so wound around the media itself, is inevitably... You know, incredibly complicated and polarizing to cover. I think. Would it make you would it make you happy or itself, would it make you
0: kind of would it make you happy or sad? Yeah. Would it make you happy or sad uh, if Donald Trump gives gives Dave Weigel a nickname?
1: Oh gosh, I suppose it would depend on the nickname. But not, I don't <laughs> think that's really what we're, what we're going for. I mean, <laughs> Trump, Trump. is a, I mean, Trump is the peak of this, though, right? Because he's and this is actually, Benji Sarlin had a great piece the other day about how sort of Ron DeSantis was take sort of to me, like, or to his analysis, took literally. I mean, Trump attacks the media a lot and says the media is bad. And so DeSantis was like, media bad, I will not talk to them. Mm-hmm. But that's not Trump's game. Trump yeah. is in this complicated dance with the media where his attacks on them amplify his message. Well, because he talks to them constantly. constantly. And he talks to them constantly. Whereas DeSantis sort of believed, we took Trump's word on it, and like mm-hmm. went to a cave and stopped
0: talking to the media which mm-hmm. is i think sure hilarious for Trump. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh it's you, you took Ron took him literally instead, <laughs> instead of seriously. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh Walter Isaacson had you on the other day. I know that he also blurred uh, the book and he asked you a question uh about Andrew Breitbart, who uh shows up a couple of times. Yeah. In the book. Um I'm going to disagree a little bit with your frame of Andrew, but I also think that you're talking about Andrew through the lens of Huffington Post, uh, as opposed to the through the lens of of right wing media. Is there a reason why you didn't kind of delve into the role that he had there and what happened in his absence?
1: Um, you know, not
0: no. I mean, I you know,
1: I sort of I was just sort of following the characters in my story, and he obviously passed away in 2012. And so I said, that's where my, my story of him to some degree ended. Although obviously I wrote about, about Bannon as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the perspective there. Yeah. I'm curious. I'm genuinely, I'm really curious what your perspective is. Well, I mean, if, if Breitbart doesn't die, then uh, you know, the daily wire doesn't exist. The federalist doesn't exist. There are a couple of other yeah. places that don't exist uh, in part because the people who helped make them are, you know, more firmly wound within his, Politics is downstream from culture. We're going to be focused more on the cultural side of the argument versus kind of the hardline border immigration, Muslims invading America kind of approach that Bannon had. And it's just interesting to me because I feel like there's a that death radiated out across the conservative media landscape in ways that were outsized. Um, I think it's, you know, your points about kind of his traffic levels and his actual like broader influence outside of the media sphere are taken and are not inaccurate. Uh, But I think that within that sphere, that the, there was a shock to the system that you could see play out in what happened in 2016.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's totally right. And I, and and a lot and I right. And and in fact, I wrote a lot about him coming up with Drudge Mm -hmm. in those early days. Um, and really, about a lot about him as a person. But I think you're totally right. And there's probably another book to be written, essentially. That
0: yeah, it's a different. Your your death. focus is obviously on and, the, on the broader, not on the that. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, I think in a way, it.
1: there's this thing,
0: right, that starts with his death, and then and, and in some sense, and then explodes into what conservative media is now. Yeah, I I, I know you've been generous with your time, but I I want to uh, you know focus for a minute on kind of this this concept of of what comes next for those who are trying to chase these similar elements um, and conceding that my wife works for the Daily Mail and uh, and that they are, you know, they sit astride the universe when it comes to the the photographs of people in bikinis and that kind of thing. Um, there There is this need to chase whatever the dominant element of the conversation is, but it seems so much that that conversation has moved away from... Something that happens in a trackable public way. Uh, people have their own yeah. WhatsApp groups. They have their own Discord servers. Uh, you know, particularly members of the Air National Guard. To our misfortune, um, they they take their conversation basically out of a way, out of the per, the public purview where it can be measured in the ways that in the at least in the opening of your book are so key to people recognizing people are clicking on things and that's not what you would think they were clicking on. That to me is something that is really a challenge. So uh, how do we work our way through that? How do we figure out what the stories are, the, the interests are that are kind of behind the curtain?
1: I mean, people are never not going to want celebrity stuff that the Daily Mail is doing. And I'm sure in the fifties, a lot more people were interested in Marilyn Monroe than John F. Kennedy. Like a lot of this stuff is just human nature. And, And we nerds are occasionally deluded about it. Um, But I I do think, you know, for better and for worse, I think each of these media periods, it's, you know, is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. It's different. It's different strengths and weaknesses. But I do think right now we're headed into this more splintered world where people are going to be having much more kind of direct conversations with journalists about what's going on and in, uh, in, in what interests them in much more, as you say, kind of private spaces. Like much less, I mean, podcasts are part of this. Mm-hmm. You know, news is going to be much less out there on social media. And I do think there was some idea that that the public internet would bring us to kind of a sh- set of shared facts. There's sort of a logic to it, and I guess Wikipedia actually does mostly succeed at this and kind of embody it. But I don't really think that happened in journalism. I think it created these divergent narratives that are at war with each other and different sets of facts. And so I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a little counterintuitive, but it feels to me like it's there's something a little less polarizing about people in you know the way they used to, picking the news outlets they're getting their news from and and, and, and not constantly seeing the dumbest version of whatever their enemies say shoved into their fists.
0: Uh, last question, what is the smallest uh, uh, trafficked... Uh, or consumed element of, of news, whether it's a podcast or a feed or a newsletter that you regularly consume?
1: Um, oh man, that's the smallest, um,
0: just the most there's a niche,
1: China, there's a, I mean, I don't know what the most niche, but, but there's, there's a great podcast called China talk that Jordan Schneider does that I listen to. Um, There's a magazine, there's a print magazine called
0: Racket about tennis I adore. Maybe those two? Racket. That's great. R-A-C-Q-U-E-T. Highly, (laughs) highly. (laughs) That's great. That's interesting. Uh, Ben Smith's book is Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. Uh, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Yeah, it's great talking to you, Ben.